0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Philip Michael Sherman, a host of the channel. Our guest today is Barry Holtz, author of Rabbi Akiva, Sage of the Talmud. Born in the land of Israel around the year 50 CE, Rabbi Akiva was the greatest rabbi of his time and one of the most important influences on Judaism as we know it today. As Barry Holtz writes in his introduction, in many ways, Akiva is the apotheosis of the deepest values of rabbinic Judaism, the essential manifestation of Jewish religion that first evolved in the first and second centuries of the Common Era and came to define the nature of Judaism for hundreds of years. Traditional sources tell how he was raised in poverty and unschooled in religious tradition, but began to learn the Torah as an adult. In the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 C.E., he helped shape a new direction for Judaism through his intellectual brilliance and his moral strength. Mystic, legalist, theologian, and interpreter, he disputed with his colleagues in dramatic fashion yet was admired and beloved by his peers. Executed by Roman authorities for his insistence on teaching Torah in public, he became the exemplar of Jewish martyrdom. Drawing on the latest historical and literary scholarship, Holtz goes beyond other biographers, untangling a concept, a complex assortment of ancient sources to present a clear and nuanced portrait of the Talmudic hero, Rabbi Akiva. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, I just read a little bit from the the dust jacket of your book, but if you could say a little bit more for us here at the very beginning about uh, who Akiva was and why he's so important for for the history of Judaism as it's been practiced since the the dawn of the Common Era.
1: Well, it's interesting that... um, Akiva, you know, if you were to ask a um, a person, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, tell me the name of a uh, an ancient rabbi, I think Akiva is probably the first name that somebody would say, even if they don't know a lot about him. Um, Akiva appears in a lot of the stories, the famous stories about the early days of rabbinic Judaism, and. The story of his martyrdom, which we can talk about a little bit later, his death at the hands of the Romans, uh, has been inscribed in Jewish liturgy and um, is such a powerful story that people just um, know about Akiva even from that. Um, I would say that the other element about Akiva, something that I do emphasize in the book, is that he represents a very particular way of thinking that is associated with Judaism and even with Jews. And that is a kind of deep intellectual engagement with text. Now, the text here, of course, is the text of Torah. But that idea that to be a Jew is to be engaged with Torah or engaged with text, and engage with it in a very close and careful reading, and I would even say, and a, a questioning of the text, interrogating the text, not its essential, not interrogating its importance, but trying to to figure out what the implications of even every word in the Torah is. That's very much associated with Akiva. I don't argue that he invented that. Because I think he picked up on some earlier traditions about that. But I think that that is one of the things that makes him such a powerful, heroic figure for the rest of Jewish history.
0: Before we get into the the various chapters of Akiva's life and of your book, you refer to this as an imaginative biography in your first chapter and your introduction to the work. And I wonder if you could say, how how did that concept guide your use of the sources, of these traditional sources? And why do you think it is so difficult to write sort of a standard biography, particularly with regard to uh, rabbinic texts and rabbinic figures?
1: Yeah, the term I use was imagined biography. I actually like yours better, (laughs) imaginative (laughs) biography. I don't want to suggest by that that it's written in novelistic form. But what I what I'm trying to get at there is the 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 question of sources of a biography of any figure from the ancient world, and particularly a figure from the Jewish ancient world, makes writing a biography in a more conventional way very difficult. And I would say by the standards of contemporary scholarship uh, almost impossible. In other words, I'm not trying to claim that I have captured the historical Akiva, whoever he was. Uh, I I am trying to capture the way Akiva was represented in rabbinic sources. And these sources are about his life and about the life of almost any of the ancient rabbis of the, what we sometimes call the Talmudic age. Those sources are almost entirely confined to the internal sources of Judaism. That is, we don't have a lot of external sources. We don't have Roman records about Akiva. We don't have his tax records. We don't have uh, him being cited in lots of Roman sources. In fact, the only, as far as I know, the only time that Akiva is mentioned in an ancient source outside of the Jewish sources is, oddly enough, in a list of rabbis um, in a in a Bible commentary by St. Jerome. That's the only source we don't find. There are other rabbinic sources, I think, are mentioned, uh, other rabbinic figures are mentioned on rare occasion in Roman sources, but Akiva is not. And the other thing about that is that it's not only... That we don't have any external sources, we don't have what you might say internal sources of a more conventional and modern biography. In other words, we don't have Akiva's diaries, we don't have his letters, we don't have uh, you know other kinds of sources that a biographer could draw upon. What we do have, and what I was able to uh, tap into is um a lot of stories about this particular figure. Akivas mentioned his name is mentioned over thirteen hundred times in the Talmud alone. Many of those are in the midst of debates, of course, but he appears in so many stories, either as a central figure or as a an important bystander, that I was able to draw upon those sources and to try to imagine a biography of Akiva. At the same time, what I tried very hard to do here was uh, not to go beyond what sources exist and try to stick within those sources and read them, read those stories. The book is almost entirely about the stories of Akiva. I've uh, lately been saying that it's not, this book is not the story of Akiva, It's the stories of Akiva. Um, And um, I try to, you know, uh, cast a kind of literary uh, consciousness onto those stories because they are, um, I think, very powerful and in some ways um, very sophisticated literary creations in, in which he is a central figure.
0: To stay then with sort of the historical background before moving through the various stages of his, his life, uh, you spend a good amount of time talking about the sort of historical framework or background against which we should think about the life of a historical Akiva, even if we can't reconstruct that because of the nature of the sources. Mm-hmm. What, what was it about the time period during which he, he lived that you think is essential for understanding what the later stories are doing by by narrating his uh, birth or teachings or death? Yeah, uh, that's
1: a good question. Uh, let's let's set the framework here. If you look up Akiva in an encyclopedia, like uh, even a very scholarly one like the Encyclopedia Judaica, um, generally speaking, they'll say he was born in the year 50 of the Common Era or around the year 50 of the Common Era. And, um, how did they come to that number? Because we don't have any outside source actually saying that, or even any internal source within the, uh, rabbinic literature. Um, I think really it's a kind of, uh, application of arithmetic. The one, um, date that is probably Very accurate or close to accurate about the historical Akiva, as much as we can know it, is about his death. Um, uh, There are some very powerful stories associated with his death. And his death, in all likelihood, came after the end of the unsuccessful Bar Kokhva revolt against the Roman authorities. So that means that Akiva died more or less around the year 135 of the common era. And I think what scholars have done is, well, he was, he died around the year 130, 135. He was an old man when he died. We don't know that, but that's what they're assuming. And let's do the math. We'll subtract 80. Let's say he died at the year, at the age of 80 from the year 130, et cetera, et cetera. And they come up to this more or less the year 50 of the common era. So we don't have a fixed number. Let's say it's around that. What I stress is not so much the accuracy of the date, but the approximation of a date like that means, in answer to your question, that at that time, um, all of the land of Israel, which later became known as Palestine, thanks to uh, Roman terminology. All of the land of Israel was ruled by the Romans. There's an old history to that and I won't go into at this point. And and in the year 70, the Romans put down a revolt that had started about two or three years prior to that by the Jews against Roman rule. They put that uh, revolt down uh, quite viciously. And um, the main, um, there was a lot of destruction, a lot of death, uh, a lot of Jews being sent into exile. It was an incredible, uh, horrible disaster, one of the worst in the history of the Jewish people. And um, if a key, and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, which had implications, vast implications for the future of Judaism, because Judaism at that point was the um, I would say the expression of a religion that goes back to biblical times, mm-hmm. namely it was very much focused around the the sacrificial cult which took place in the temple those sacrifices they get outlined originally in the Bible and then get expanded in the later commentaries um, that was what Jewish practice, was focused on of course there was the observance of the sabbath there was the observance of eating prohibitions which we call kashrut and there were a few other kinds of uh practices but the destruction of the temple meant that all of that ritual um that was focused around the temple had to be reconceptualized something that didn't happen immediately But in a certain way, if Akiva was uh, born in the year 50, more or less, he was a young man when the temple was destroyed. So that he lived through this great, tragic event. And that must have shaped his consciousness in thinking about what Judaism would be. So I think in terms of the historical context, The fact that Palestine was under Roman rule, a revolt failed uh, to disastrous consequences. Akiva lived through that and lived during a period of continuing Roman rule.
0: Well, to turn to his birth, you argue that there are two major sort of uh, versions of of, uh, his early origins, uh, what you would call a a philosophical version and a romantic version. Can you say... What both of those versions are, and, and what different kinds of things they're trying to communicate about the importance uh, of Rabbi yeah, Akiva.
1: sure. First and foremost, I just want to mention one of the things that's interesting is the uh, the origins of Akiva. I start with that after a chapter about the you know um, historical background. The origins of Akiva. We don't have the origins of this figure the way we would have it in a conventional biography written today of a figure within the recent past or even the somewhat distant past. And that is we don't know anything about his parentage. His ancestors. We don't start the biography of Akiva the way you would start the biography of, uh, I don't know, Nathaniel Hawthorne or Teddy Roosevelt by saying his grandfather was such and such, or even his father was such and such, and his mother was such and such. The only thing we know about his parents, the only thing we know about his parents, is that his father's name was Joseph, Yosef. Akiva Ben Yosef is a name. Akiva, the son of Joseph, is an it's a name that's used in Talmudic sources. Actually very few Talmudic sources, only about ten or twelve is his full name used. but clearly, his father's name was Joseph. and we know that he did not come from distinguished parentage. That's a number of stories like that uh, where we where 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 it's shown that Akiva doesn't come from a wealthy background and doesn't come from background with a lot of, um, you know, um, status, even if he didn't have wealth. So I begin by talking about the story that that I call the philosophical story about the birth of Akiva. In this story, a very interesting and kind of uh, beautifully ambiguous story, we see Akiva. He's not a kid. It says he was 40 years old and he hadn't studied Torah. And he's standing by a well, and he asks a question. What dug this well? It's a natural well. It's not a man-made well. What what dug this well? And there are people standing around. And they quote a verse from the Bible about how water cuts through stone. Clearly, water has cut through the stone to create this um. This well. When I have taught this story, and honestly, when I first confronted this story, it was not a story I thought much about. I probably had read it, but it wasn't until I started working on the book that I started thinking more uh, deeply about this story. I think most people would think that when Akiva asks, you know, who made this? Well, that it's a it's a theological story. It's a story about, oh, he's going to discover God here. But in fact it doesn't go that way at all. Yeah, uh, it's a much more personal uh psychological and philosophical story rather than a story about God. So Akiva looks at this well and this verse that water cuts cuts through stone and he said, I must go now and study Torah because the words of the Torah are like iron and they will shape my Hard heart. We know nothing about what was hard about his heart. We only know that seeing this water led him to make a leap to think he needed to go study Torah. And the story continues that he goes and he finds a school teacher and he goes with his son, and they start just with the alphabet. And Akiba is just doing the alphabet, learning the alphabet, and he leaps forward and he masters all of rabbinic literature up to that all of the biblical literature and, and the teachings of the rabbis up to that time so that's the first story that it the the experience of just contemplating this well leads him to make a decision about his life and the importance of studying torah i think that for me Not to get uh, homiletical about this, but I I do think there is a, a kind of teaching embedded in this story that the story is meant to communicate. And that is that there is something about the study of Torah that is ultimately about personal transformation. It's about change. That a person changes By being engaged with Torah. Torah, Or to put it in another way. It's not just an intellectual exercise. And and I think one of the things that's incredibly important about Akiva is he is brilliant. His intellectual brilliance is recognized by his peers, recognized by his teachers. And even in this story, he's just, you know, mastering um, all of this literature, starting knowing not even the alphabet at the age of 40, and already he is like leaping ahead. But it's not just about the brilliance. It is about what's beyond the brilliance, and namely, it's about personal change. It's about personal meaning. Uh, That may be a kind of contemporary way of expressing this, but I do think that that's what the story in its own time is even trying to express. The Torah really, really is important. And it's important not just because it's uh, fun and engaging uh, to debate it and question it and think about it and explore it and dive into it, but that it's really, really important for a person's life. So that's one tradition. And a completely different tradition is the one that I grew up knowing, and that is what I call the, the romantic version, as you said, but I, I, I also in a more popular way call it the Hollywood version. Cause if you're going to make a movie <laughs> about the life of Akiva, um, and I have not heard any offers from Hollywood yet, but you know, who knows that you would do, you wouldn't do the Akiva at the well. You would do Akiva in the romantic version, which is this. Akiva is a poor shepherd. And he's working on the big farm. Let's call it a ranch, because this is kind of like an old style Western. He's working on the ranch of a rich guy. Uh, Kalba Savua is the guy's name. And Kalba Savua has this daughter, and she sees Akiva and she falls for him. And she says to him, I'll marry you but on condition that you go go study Torah. And he says yes I'll do that. And when the father hears about this he is furious it's a bad match. Who is his shepherd? Who is his farmhand working on the on the ranch of uh, the big cattle lord? Uh, he's supposed to make a better marriage for the for the daughter. He's supposed to uh, fix her up with the son of the next cattle ranch and make a uh, make a little bit of a, a you know a economic gain here and so uh Savua kicks her out of the house disinherits her and off they go they get married they're living in a hayloft they're freezing cold and yet he still has his promise that he's going to go off and study torah and there are a few different versions of what happens next. Ultimately, what happens is he goes off and he spends 12 years away learning and then he comes back and they, they meet up again. And then he goes away for another 12 years with her, um, with her acquiescence. Uh, and then he comes back in even greater uh, scholar and trailing behind him are 24,000 students. It, let's say it's a bit of an exaggeration. But the, the story is trying to emphasize that he he does become a great scholar. And 24,000 is a nice round number. The rabbis like the number 12. It's a good number in general in the ancient world. 12 months of the year, etc., cetera, etc., cetera and then there's a, then there's a, a, a quite a, an amazing scene after he reconciles with the wife the, uh he then meets his father-in-law and his father-in-law at that time has already felt bad and guilty all these years later that he disinherited the daughter and he but in the ancient world a vow which he made he vowed that he would not uh, support her Um, how do you undo a vow? You have to go to a rabbi and figure out how to do it, because it's tricky. So he goes to this great scholar that has appeared in the town to ask, you know, how can I undo this vow, because I feel guilty, and and Akiva reveals himself to be that very, very young man, now the great scholar that that Sebuah had disinherited. So I've skipped some of the really uh, nice detail. People can read the book to see it. But um, that's the romance version. And what that story is trying to emphasize, I think, is his dedication, her dedication to him. Um, when when um, he comes back to the town with all of his disciples, his wife is, of course, she doesn't have much money because um, her father isn't supporting her. So she's just making do. And she's dressed very poorly. And she comes out and she embraces him. And, this, and um, his students say, um, what's this woman doing? Get rid of this woman. And Akiba stops them, of course, and says, if it weren't for her, you wouldn't be here. In other words, it's because of her that I've been able to learn and then teach and to have all these disciples. So um, it's a complex story. Um, It's been read by feminists in interesting ways. Um, It's um, a story that, you know, I did a little exploration about how, how was the biography of Akiva told to children? And I looked at um, children's uh, textbooks. Um, I found one from the 1920s and then one from the 1950s and one from the 1970s. And all of them tell the story of Akiva with the Hollywood version. The other version is not. it's probably why I didn't really know it, uh, even though it's in a text I had studied, but I hadn't paid much attention to it because the Hollywood version is is like hard to forget. Um, so, um, and I think the two strands, the two different traditions, um, you know, one of the things about that we haven't talked about is, um, the nature of these sources, these story sources, um, it used to be that, um, scholars, took these stories from Talmudic literature about all the rabbis, of which there are many, many stories, not just about Akiva, as kind of historical data. But now um, it really, people tend to look at them as something else. And, you know, as one scholar said, they're didactic stories, they're stories that want to teach something. I I like that formulation. I think that I'd go beyond it a little. It's not only that they're didactic, that they're teaching, but they're also literary in the sense that, you know, they're open-ended and they're readable as literary works with ambiguities and ironies and a lot of techniques of storytelling that we view as uh, much more sophisticated than you would expect from ancient works. But the stories were told orally before they were written down. And I think one reason why we have two very different stories about the origins of Akiva, the philosophy one and the romance one is because um, different people uh, knew these stories, told these stories. They, they may have basis in fact, we don't know, we can't know that. And what's, Nowadays, scholars have really dropped the idea uh, that was popular some years ago of what's the historical kernel here? We understand it's not all history. There weren't 24,000 students. You know That's an exaggeration. What's the real historical kernel? Uh, it really, in, scholarship in the last 30 years have really uh, dropped that. And people, instead, scholars are saying, okay, these stories were passed down On purpose, to try to represent something about rabbinic culture, about rabbinic values, about rabbinic, uh, I would say, um, ambiguities, about um, things that troubled them. The fact that a guy could leave his wife essentially for all those years, even if that's exaggeration, um, I think there's something troubling there. and. It's interesting, the story has figures that raise the question of how could you be loyal to him after he left you for so long? Now, they lose. Those opinions don't win out, but they're the voice there. So I think the rabbis do use these stories about themselves and about their culture to express what they cared about most and what they worried about most.
0: Well, perhaps let's transition to sort of another. So, Akiva is known as this great scholar, but he's also then known as a mystic. Yes, and he's associated with the development of of Jewish mysticism. Can you can you talk about the Partiz story and how Akiva figures within that, and what that might tell us about those ambiguities, those uncertainties, that uncomfortable uh, uh, aspect of religious life that perhaps the rabbis are trying to talk about through the usage of a figure like Akiva.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that one usually thinks about Akiva and most of the other rabbis in the context of um, debates about Jewish law, and that's not unreasonable. That is, is certainly not unreasonable. But it's also true that at the same time, around the same time, And among some of the same figures as these ancient rabbis, we have a a mystical tradition um, evolving in Judaism, namely that um, it's possible to experience the divine in one's own um, in one's own kind of meditative state, Um, and we have stories. And teachings that are uh, truly mystical in their um, in their um, import. I'm going to just read um, one version of what's called the Pardes story. So, just a word about that word. Pardes is usually translated as orchard or garden. It's an interesting word. It's a it's a loan word into Hebrew. From uh, probably from Persian. Um, it uh, is related to the Greek word that we know in English as paradise. So when you see a story about rabbi, uh, four figures, we'll talk. I'll read the story in a second, who enter a pardes, enter a garden, perhaps it is meant to suggest that they are entering into the heavenly realm. And that is the way it's been understood. This little story that I'm about to read um, has, I believe, it is said, I haven't counted, but I'm relying what other people have written. Uh, It is said that this particular story has garnered more scholarly ink than virtually any other story in rabbinic literature. Because it's so... um, it's so uh, compelling and confusing, and the greatest scholar of Jewish mysticism of the 20th century, Gershom Scholem, uh, in a famous lecture, wrote about this story as representing a mystical ascent. Um, a report of an actual mystical experience. And it goes like this. I'm reading from uh, the earliest source of this, which is from a source known as the Tosefta. The Tosefta is a, um, is a parallel text to the Mishnah, which is the earliest uh, fully composed rabbinic literature. And people like to say the Tosefta are, this, are the things in the Mishnah that didn't make it into the Mishnah. Uh, it's a parallel text, and it's very early. And here, this, the, the story of the Pardes appears also in the Babylonian Talmud, in the, in the Jerusalem Talmud, which precedes the Babylonian. But this is considered the oldest version. Four entered the Pardes, the orchard. One looked and died. One looked and was stricken. One looked and cut down the shoots. When one went up in peace and came down in peace. Now, the, now they'll explain who were the, the four people. Ben Azai looked and died. Ben Zoma looked and was, stric- was stricken. acher looked and cut down the shoots. Rabbi Akiva went up in peace and came down in peace. A parable was offered. To what might this be compared? It is like a king's pardes, king's orchard, with an upper chamber built above it. What should a person do? Look, but let him not feast his eyes upon it. Okay, let's just review. Four guys go into an orchard. It's clearly not a normal orchard. Clearly it has some the fact that the word pardes is used, you can use the word pardes in normal speech, any old orchard, but I think it's not meant like that. One of those, the first one, and they're all figures um around the same time as Rabbi Akiva, associates of Rabbi Akiva, you might say. One looked, and that is Ben Azai. He looked And whatever it was that he saw killed him. Another one, Benzoma looked and was stricken. And that terminology in rabbinic literature means he went crazy. He went mad. Um, There's an amazing story um, about Benzoma. And actually, you know, now that I think of it, I wasn't able to put this, that story into the book only for the, because of space. Um, I, I was supposed to write a book that came out around 200 pages, which this does, and instead I wrote a, a manuscript that came out around 250 pages. The publisher said, hey, hmm, that's not exactly what we expected. So I cut out some very cool stories that are not right to the point about Akiva, but the story about Ben Zoma... Um, he goes mad, and we have this great story where one of the other rabbis bumps into him, and essentially Benzoma is babbling. And he's babbling like a, a crazy person that I might see out on the streets of Manhattan, and I see plenty of them, babbling about the upper heavens and the waters that touch the heavens, and what's the, what's the boundary between the two, and can I know the boundary? And the, the rabbi sees him and, and basically says, you know, he, he's crazy, he's off his rocker, and soon after, um, Ben Zoma um, dies. We don't know how. The first rabbi, the first figure, Ben Azai, looks and dies. Achir. Achir is a Hebrew word which means the other. And it's the nickname for one of the most interesting figures in rabbinic literature. I had a lot of stuff on him that I had to cut out also. Elisha ben Abuya. Elisha ben Abuya is a rabbi who became an apostate. He stopped being a believer. He began to uh, reject all of the teachings of the rabbis. And therefore, he got the nickname Acher, the other, the outsider, and it is said, there are many different traditions about what led Elisha uh, Benabuya to, to give up his uh, religion. Um, that's not a phrase they would have understood. Uh, it's kind of anachronistic phrase, but it makes sense. Give up his, uh, his, uh, his Jewish um, religious uh, being and practice is one of the stories about that is that he went up to Pardes, what he saw there did something to his brain, turned him into an apostate, and it uses the phrase, cut down the shoots, which the Talmud tries to explain and has some interesting explanations, one of which is that he began to try to corrupt the young people and go to schools and try to turn these children away from the faith of their fathers. And um, of course, that um, led to him being ostracized even more. And then finally it says, Rabbi Akiva went up in peace and came down in peace. He, He ascended to the heavenly realm. He saw the throne of God. Now we know that from a much later source, but it's consistent with this. The mystical literature that was being produced around the same time as the Talmud, and including some of the same figures, views Akiva as a hero because of the Parde story and then the interpretations around it. Only Akiva was able to ascend and see the throne of God, and in one case, it even seems to suggest that he sees God himself, which only Moses had done face to face. And therefore, for the rest of Jewish history, Akiva, for all of his brilliance as a scholar and all of his brilliance as a legal interpreter, he remains a hero to the mystical tradition from thence so that the great mystics of, of Tzfat, of Safed in the 16th century, Isaac Luria and his followers view Akiva as one of the great heroic figures. The later Hasidic masters view Akiva as one of their heroic figures because it is said he was able to attain what mystics want to attain, some direct experience of God.
0: Yeah, It's fascinating to me because in some sense you have Akiva being sort of adopted as this uh, first mystic or primary mystic And yet the story itself sort of also warns against the excesses or the dangers or the destabilizing uh, aspect of mysticism in relationship maybe to not the more clear-cut, but the more traditionally central role of law and its exposition. And so to bring Akiva in both as a legal figure and as this sort of uh, guarantor that it's possible to have an orthodox mystical experience – uh, I think is really fascinating. I, I want to ask about uh, then then also Akiva's death because sort of that's the third sort of main focus of his life and how it's used in thinking about um, the tradition as, as what a good death looks like and what martyrdom in the tradition ought to be. Yeah,
1: you know it's interesting we're recording this in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and it happens that uh, tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a, a teaching session about the, the death of Akiva. And the reason is because um, in the liturgy for Yom Kippur, one of the things that takes place and one of the kind of powerful highlights of the liturgy is uh, in the service itself. There is a lengthy poem called Ela Eskera, these I remember. Which is an early medieval poem based on um, based on rabbinic teachings, and it recounts the death of ten rabbis during the persecutions that um, were initiated by the Emperor Hadrian after the failure of the Bar Kokhva revolt against Roman rule in Palestine. Hadrian was then the Roman Empire uh, emperor, and He uh, initiated a certain number of um, powerful and um, uh, highly um, tragic prohibitions on Jewish life in Palestine. Uh, We don't know what happened when exactly. Was it before the Bar Kochva revolt or after the Bar Kokhla revolt that he initiated them? And one of the ones that he initiated, at least according to Jewish tradition, is a prohibition on the the study of Torah, and the teaching of Torah, and, and the learning of Torah. And the story of the death of Akiva is the story about how, after these prohibitions have been put in place, Akiva is teaching Torah in public, and he gets uh, essentially arrested by the Roman authorities. Thrown into jail, there are a lot of stories about uh, him in jail, and eventually he uh, is executed by the Romans. And it's it is one of the most um, enduring stories in all of the Jewish tradition that Akiva is brought out, and he is going to be executed and. He begins by quoting, uh, to, and his students are surrounding him, and he quotes a teaching um, that says a person is supposed to praise God for not only for the good things, but also for the bad things. And then he says, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, uh, the verse that... Uh, we we are no, we know as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that begins after that, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Akiva interprets those three phrases: with all your heart, even with the parts of yourself that are not entirely good, your your um, impulses, your um, desires, you should praise God with both that, those aspects, with all your soul, meaning even if God takes away your life, and with all your might, meaning with all your wealth. Akiva interprets these, and um, then the story focuses on the middle one, with all your soul, even if he takes away your life, even if God takes away your life, you should continue to praise God. So Akiva's in jail and essentially waiting to be executed. And there's another guy in jail uh, near him. It's also a Jewish guy. And um, this guy's been thrown into jail for um, kind of, let's call it criminal activity. And Akiva has been thrown into jail because he's teaching the Torah. And... um, the other guy says to him, like, why did you teach the Torah in public? I mean, you knew this was going to happen. And Akiba says, look, Torah is the life of the people. Torah is the future of the Jewish people. And if I stop teaching Torah, I might as well not be alive. And so they take him out to be executed. And as he is being executed, he is saying the Shema. He is saying these, these verses from Deuteronomy. And they are, as it says in the text, combing his flesh with iron combs, torturing him, and he is um, he is proclaiming God's glory. And his students say, Master, even at this point, and he says, my whole life I've been wondering, how can I fulfill this command to love God even if he takes away your soul? And now I have the opportunity to fulfill this command. And according to the version in the Babylonian Talmud, he dies reciting the Shema and saying the final word, Echad, one, God is one, his life uh, leaves him. Now, that story is not only the story told in this poem, Ela Esker, that's repeated on Yom Kippur. But this is the origin of a very well-known Jewish, um, trope. Namely, martyrs, Jewish martyrs throughout Jewish history die trying to say, at their death, trying to, to die with the Shema on their lips. That's the origin of it here, the Akiva story. He becomes the model. For that kind of later martyrdom that you see in the Middle Ages and stories about people, people um, dying, uh, martyrs dying by saying the Shema, and it, and it's here that we find it. I think Akiva in this story is trying to say two things. One, the obvious one, which is, um, no matter what happens to him, even you know, praising God for the bad as well as the good, because there are things we cannot understand. That's, a, that's one thing. And the other thing he's saying to his students is something I had not much thought about before I um, started working on the book, that when he is taken out to be executed, it is the time of day that the Shema is, by Jewish law, recited in the regular prayers And he's saying in a different way, when the students say, even at this point, he's saying, yeah, even at this point, I am following the teachings of Jewish law to say the Shema in the morning or the evening. I'm guessing the execution must have taken place in the morning, uh, but we don't have any evidence one way or the other. So that two things come out of it um, that even under the worst of circumstances, the power of tradition is what we observe. And the other is that. We praise God no matter what. It's a hard teaching to hear. And and the the story continues by um, uh, sort of changing our focus up to the heavenly realm. And the angels are saying to God, this is Torah and this is its reward. That is this guy, the greatest master of Torah in his time. And that's what he gets. He gets that reward. I love that. Because I, I mean, it's astounding that the rabbis who are telling this story or creating this story, obviously about the angels, are putting into their lips, into their words, what they must have felt. How could Akiva have have um, had to endure this terrible death when he was such a great master and teacher? And the angels ask that question, and finally God answers. And says to them, a uh, heavenly voice from God uh, proclaims, Happy are you, Rabbi Akiva, that you are invited to the life of the world to come. In other words, that Akiva will have his reward in the world to come. There's a later story that plays off of this earlier story in which uh, Akiva's death is recounted yet again. And, um, The angels ask the same question, and in that story, God says to them, be quiet, this is what I have decided, which to me expresses that the rabbis of the Talmud were not entirely satisfied with the idea that his death was... um, Recompense for his death was was life in the world to come, you know, an afterlife that they felt mixed about that too, and they and in the end, when God says, "Shut up," essentially, "Shut up, angels." This is what I've decided. Uh, I think the rabbis who wrote that story and passed it on to us uh, are saying, you know, sometimes there are things we don't understand and uh, reward reward for one's deeds in the life of the world to come is not always a sufficient answer. Let's put it that way.
0: Once again, the book is Rabbi Akiva, Sage of the Talmud, and we've been talking to Professor Barry Holtz. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.